Welcome to The Food Group, a podcast aimed at people who love to know a little more about the food that they're eating, and I don't mean what's in it, but more about how those dishes came into existence at all. What was it that made someone, not always a chef, put the ingredients together in the first place, and what made others copy them and keep them alive for sometimes centuries? Whilst we've made every effort to back up these stories with legitimate evidence or endorsement, they are all just tales. Stories to share and pass around with even more wit and imagination. Only the methods behind the dishes have ever been officially recorded, and what you're about to hear has been passed down through the centuries via word of mouth alone. So be warned, it is likely that none of what follows ever happened. So this podcast is going to focus on two very different but quite luxurious recipes. Recipes that you may only try once or twice at home, but may have eaten out a few times, perhaps at a special occasion or a celebration. Both of them owe their creation to moments of explosive impact and forces large enough to leave their mark on food history for a few hundred years at least. The first one is Lobster Thermidor. Even the name sounds luxurious and its combination of firm lobster flesh topped with cream, cheese, egg and brandy already sounds like a recipe fit for a king. But quite the contrary, this is a recipe born out of revolution, the French Revolution, and I suspect the last thing on Louis XVI's mind at the time was this seafood spectacular. Here's top chef Daniel Garmiche to explain how it's put together. So lobster thermidor, uh, this... In the restaurant world, we make it out of fresh live lobster. But people who would like to reproduce in a household, the best is to buy a, a pre-cooked frozen lobster, uh, cut in half, and normally we, we slightly grill both part of it before removing the tail. But there is a technique we use, uh, which is really interesting, so we can speak about it very briefly. Then when, when your lobster is cut in half, yeah, and you part grill it suddenly, so you remove the tail... When you remove the tail, you just swap them opposite because they fit the shell on the other side. So that's a technique so that will be fitting your shell perfectly because you just swap them. It makes sense, yeah? So you cut in, in normally three to four, nice big uh, big chunk, and you swap tail. And it's served uh, with uh, uh, lovely what we call uh, sauce thermidor. So uh, uh, the, the, the base of the thermidor also, because it's different way, I said you can cut it, you can grill a part of it, but some people poach it very quickly, okay? And after that cut, and use a little bit of the bouillon with a bit of wine wine, uh, uh, shallots reduction, and that's what would make your base for your sauce thermidor. So you got already a bit of a flavor into it. And after that, you, you add, at the time, they were adding a little bit of meat stock as well. Now, we would do a brown fish stock instead and some fresh herbs. And uh, after that, you make your, your, your sauce thermidor, you finish it, and uh, like a bechamel, and add some mustard. And after that, you kind of put it on the top and glaze it, parmesan, and finish under the, the grill. The French Revolution was a bloodthirsty time. By 1794, many heads had rolled and the country as a whole had been turned pretty much upside down. The king, Louis XVI, and his wife, Marie Antoinette, had been executed and the fearsome Maximilien Robespierre was running things. The old ways were thrown out and Robespierre implemented many new ideas and one of the lesser-known ones was that of the calendar months. No longer were they named after the old Roman gods, but instead different names for the seasons were introduced, usually referring to the weather. The year was set to zero to mark the nation's new birth and the period of Thermidor was used to refer to the hot, summery months. Now, 
The revolutionaries may well have given power to the people, but the people themselves weren't feeling much love under the new regime either. It seemed that whilst those around them were enjoying a newfound control and wealth, the lives of most people were pretty much unchanged, or, as the French so eloquently put it, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. The more things change, the more things stay the same. And things culminated on the 27th of July 1794, or, as it was known to the revolutionaries, Nine Thermidor Year Two. Catchy, I know. Robespierre's enemies, of which there were now many, turned on him, denounced him, arrested him, and declared him an enemy of the people. His head was removed the very next day. <laughs> Scholars now refer to this as a Thermidorian reaction due to the date, as well as the very heated way in which things turned out. And it's an evolutionary stage that's been identified in many revolutions since. It's that point at which those that revolted and overthrew their governing body changed to become the focus of a second revolutionary force, usually returning things back to the way they were in the first place. Afterwards, the population feels somewhat sated, and the social pressures that led to the upheaval have diminished slightly, but with plenty of blood having been spent. It took about a hundred years or so for the somewhat nervous and slightly raw French people to be able to look at this time in their history with more objective eyes and use it to inspire and inform their creative expression. The playwright Victorian Sardou was already a success by 1894. His shows at the Comédie Française in Paris were hugely popular, the best known of which was called Fedora, credited with making the hat of the same name very popular. The French Revolution furnished him with three plays, but the most famous of these was simply called Thermidor. It tells the story of a young actor who infiltrates the powerful Committee for Public Safety and saves potential victims of the guillotine by burning their files. Any new Sardo production created quite a buzz in the city and all the restaurants in the area were vying for the attention of a sudden swell in the numbers of passers-by. It was at the brasserie Chez Marie where our story centres. Their chalkboard out front simply had three words. Lobster Thermidor tonight. History doesn't tell us the name of the chef that night, but his influences can be traced back to the great New York chef and cookbook writer Charles Ranhofer. Ranhofer was one of the big international culinary names of the day, having created the most exciting restaurant in one of the most exciting places on earth. He'd already been credited with inventing dishes like baked Alaska and veal a la Dickens for the British novelist's recent trip to America. Ranhofer had published his recipes in a mighty tome and his lobster Newberg was quickly becoming the benchmark for seafood recipes served at the very best places. And it was for Madeira and Cayenne sauce in this recipe that seems to have given our chef at Chez Marie his starting point. Simply by replacing these two for the more accessible and French mustard and cognac, the Thermidor was born. Both the lobster dish and the play were launched onto the French public at the same time and it doesn't take too much to work out which went down better. I wonder how many productions of Thermidor the play are currently in a theatre somewhere. Perhaps Daniel Galmiche can explain why the recipe has remained so popular over all these years. This recipe is popular and it always is and always will be, I guess. But uh, perhaps because it's come out of this famous restaurant in Boulevard Saint-Denis when it was made. And uh, they created a dish, so therefore people remember it, I guess. And, uh, and that's what's happened when somebody creates something. And there's a name attached to it, and uh, obviously because of this uh, uh, premiere of the play for Thermidor, and uh, uh, maybe that's that's what's happened. But today, you see lobster Thermidor on the menu. What does that say to you about the restaurant, about the evening? What does that mean? Well, I think, uh, yes, because it's a classic, so you need to be able to do it well. So if somebody put a lobster Thermidor on the menu, uh, it needs to be really well done, you know. And uh, like I said, uh, we said originally, they use meat 
meat stock for, for it at the time. But, but uh, modern time was use a brown fish stock made out of, for example, turbot bone or, or even the carcass of the lobster or the trimming of the lobster, you know, because they used to reconstitute uh, out of the claw the meat and put it back in the claw, mixed with the herbs and a bit of the of the thermidor. So, so it was much more complicated than people think, you know. The classic actually are complicated because uh, at the time of Carême, uh, Escoffier and all these people, uh, they used to take time and 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 really made sure that everything was spot on all the time, I think. Meanwhile, outside the Comédie Française back in 1894, an angry crowd is gathering. Audiences were enraged with Thermidor's anti-government themes, and by just the second performance, the people began to have a small revolution of their own. And it was just the swift intervention of the local gendarme that prevented a riot breaking out. The play was pulled from the theatre and a ban placed on it at any state-funded theatre. Later theatrical runs proved less than popular with audiences, and the play fell away. Lobster Thermidor, though, soon spread across Paris and beyond. We know it got to America in time for the notable food writer and broadcaster Julia Child to present her own recipe for it in 1960. Today, its sight on the menu remains a mark of luxury, and it continues to be one of those dishes that seafood lovers the world over still lose their heads over. The flavour of lobster, as luck would have it, is a natural match for some of the finest wines in the world. A rich, oaky Chardonnay from Burgundy will wash it down nicely, I think you'll find. And as well as shining our spotlight on some of the stories behind the best-known dishes, we're also making an attempt to put together a list of some of the greatest bottles of wine ever produced over the history of time. These could simply be mythically good vintages, or perhaps history has made a particular year and location especially interesting. But before we add another one to our cellar of the gods, here's wine expert Ollie Smith, and he's going to suggest a more accessible wine that we urge you all to try. What have you got, Ollie? I've got Beaujolais Cru, and there's a big difference between Beaujolais Cru and all the other Beaujolais. So Cru, C-R-U, is the key word here. It refers to the individual named villages. There are 10 of them that create the very best Beaujolais in the world. And I reckon it's the best fine wine bargain anywhere, specifically because we've had some good vintages. 2013, good. 2014, excellent. 2015, now look, if you're listening to this in 2052, I'm really sorry, but 2015, stellar. Absolutely stellar, and they are still great value for money. We're talking 10 to 15 quid. You can find great examples. All sorts of different styles as well. So you've got these villages like Cheruble and Fleury, which do the delicate styles, Juliana as well. But for ageing, Chenin and Saint-Amour, but the real keepers, Morgan, Moulin Avant. Those are the wines that I've tasted way back through vintages to the 50s. You know, you think of Pinot Noir as an ageing great variety, Gamay, trust me, it ages incredibly well. You can spend 12 95 from a good independent wine merchant like Tanner's, they've got incredible Beaujolais, stick it away for 10, 20, 30 years somewhere safe, it really will repay you dividends. Buy 12 of them, buy 20,000 of them if you can, they taste incredible. Uh, the Bruy is the largest of them, uh, Cote de Bruy, making wines with oomph, Regnier is run, that's R-E-G-N-I-E, is the village that just is so laser, razor sharp. It's, it's raspberries and pencil sharpeners stuff. Looking for a good winemaker there, the guy is Jules Sunier. I reckon Jules Sunier, he's, uh, I don't know, he's like J.J. Kale. He can extemporise, he can bring a, a kind of a, a groove to a, a most incredibly amazing vintage that you didn't think was there. Equally in off vintages, he's the man. But for me, the Beaujolais crew, they're not just affordable, they are laughable for their prices. These are the wines that seriously, I can't believe they're as cheap as they are. They are they're incredible. 
I don't know what else, what else can I say? There must be another word apart from incredible. I keep saying incredible. It's a good word. It is now, a good word. People say here Beaujolais, obviously they think Beaujolais Nouveau. Nouveau, it's just not that great to be honest. It's, it's young and raw. Uh, Beaujolais Village, you know, the village level one, it's all right, but it's a very hit and miss category. The named crew villages, CRUs, that magical word. I, I, I urge you, even if you think Gamay is a weak, weedy, feeble grape as my dear mother does, she's wrong. If you don't like it young, age it. These, trust me, can live so much longer than anyone has ever thought possible. Beaujolais crew, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to the Food Group Podcast, where we're sharing stories behind some of the well-known dishes we see on menus all over the world today. If you've got a suggestion or perhaps you disagree with the story we've put forward and have a better one, then please do get in touch, either for our Facebook page, The Food Group, or our website, thefoodgrouppodcast.com. As well as guiding us to some fascinating and perhaps more unusual wines that we can all get hold of today, we've asked Ollie Smith to put on his thinking cap and pull together a collection of some of the greatest wines and vintages that have ever been produced. A wine rack of the gods, if you like. It's possible that you will never even see most of them, but it's always worth keeping a note of a list somewhere about your person, just in case the opportunity to try one does present itself. So here's Ollie with our latest edition. In our rack of the gods... I'm putting in a bottle of Paul Roger champagne from 1914. And Paul Roger make all sorts of different wines. You know, their non-vintage is incredible. Uh, their Winston Churchill is iconic. I visited the winery in the company of one of the most genial human beings I've ever met, Patrice Noel. So Paul Roger, I'm sure, wouldn't mind me saying in the nicest possible way, they do everything in a very traditional way. It's almost like Grace Brothers. Everything's done by hand. So the riddling, when I was there at least, was all being done meticulously. And Patrice very generously opened me a bottle of 1914 Paul Roger. And the phrase that they evoke uh, when they pour this wine, this ancient sparkling wine, is picked to the sound of gunfire drunk to the sound of trumpets. Because 1914 was the time when the Germans were advancing. And people were off fighting, so school children, mums, anyone who could dived into the vineyards to help bring in the harvest. It meant that much to them. And for that wine to live and survive and, you know, the, the chalk cellars beneath the kind of the, the Champagne region are still etched today with graffiti, people sheltering, you know, with pikes and signs of, you know, the, the, the fear they felt from the advancing army. Um, when, it, when I tasted the wine, you know, it's this kind of hazelnut colour. There's still a fine bead of, of uh, bubbles. They're very, very faint. Uh, it's very nutty and very, very rich. Um, it's evocative because of what it stands for. It stands for liberty and it stands for the struggle to defend your freedoms and your way. Uh, and it also is about survival, actually, and vineyards that survive that, plus bringing the traditions it gave me hope. I just thought, you know, no matter how bad it gets, when you're facing the really most terrible untruths and lies and the, the fabric of the world seems to be falling apart, it endures. This wine endures. And it has endured beyond the hands that picked it. And it, it should be drunk to the sound of trumpets for that reason. So that's why it's in our Rack of the Gods. Thanks, Ollie. And we'll be putting the whole list up on our website, thefoodgrouppodcast.com. And if you would like to add one or suggest one, do let us know either there or through our Facebook page, and don't forget to subscribe to these podcasts so you never miss an episode either. In these podcasts, you will hear names of many famous chefs from throughout the centuries. All will have made their mark on their industry and all will have moved things forward a little in some way or other. Names like Escoffier and Ranhofer feature frequently in the creation of several of the most famous dishes in food history. But there is one name that comes before them all. 
and he created our next recipe, Tornados Rossini. The chef is Marie-Antoine Carême, and his impact on the food world is seismic. He was cooking some hundred years or so earlier than Escoffier and was a chef of such prestigious talent that it is no surprise that kings and emperors sought out his help to make the kitchens in the grand palaces places for the world to admire. Carême first showed signs of greatness in 1798 when working as a young pastry apprentice. His works of architectural wonder, all made from a brittleless pastry, filled the window of his employer Sylvain Bailly's shop in Paris and they caught the eye of diplomat and gourmand Charles-Maurice Talleyrand. Talleyrand was one of the most influential diplomats in France and later became a French ambassador to England, but right now he needed Carême to impress his guests with small, delicate, sweet pastry at his Paris apartment. He hired him on several occasions and it was at one such dinner that the great Emperor Napoleon first tried his food. Napoleon knew culinary talent when he tasted it and he quickly stole young Carême away from his ambassador. The chef's career rose as the emperor's empire grew and whilst armies collided across Europe, word of Napoleon's culinary powerhouse grew so much in fact that despite the emperor's defeat in 1815, Carême was able to move across the channel and begin work at the home of the prince regent no less. From here he moved to Russia to work for Tsar Alexander I and then finally returning to Paris in the employ of James Mayer de Rothschild, a wealthy banker at the centre of the new French elite. So back to our recipe, Tornados Rossini. It's not Tornados Carême, you'll notice, and that's because it didn't take just one master of his craft to create it, but two. And this other genius wasn't a chef, but a composer, and an Italian one too. Gioacchino Antonio Rossini, arguably the finest composer of Italian opera that ever lived. But before we see how these two titans collided, here's top chef Daniel Gummies to explain what Tornados Rossini is, and be prepared, it's pretty rich stuff. Very rich stuff. It's another classic, very rich, and uh, still served today as all classic, and uh, appreciate today and love because uh, in, in our country we love foie gras and other country too. So it's a, it's a lovely uh, top quality fillet of beef, uh, which take a big, good chunk out of it, good 200 gram, pan roasted, uh, and uh, serve with some uh, crouton. And on the top of the crouton, which is pan-fried, it's butter. So we took a rich, uh, of course. Uh, a big slice of foie gras, pan-roasted, beautiful. So you need a great quality foie gras so it doesn't collapse when you cook it. Put on a crouton. Uh, generally, the crouton is pointed and we dip it in the jus, which is uh, Madeira sauce, very rich with some truffle in it. And you put some parsley on the top at the, at the, at the point of the crouton. And uh, a Big slice of foie gras, so you build on height like this and you serve that with this lovely, rich, velvety sauce. A little bit sticky because it's Madeira, so it's reduced a little bit too much, but still good. Touch of caramelized flavor coming out of it and some fresh truffles through in it. And here you go, lovely Tornado Rossini. Rich is understatement, but delightful. <laughs> so you have steak, foie gras, Madeira, brandy, port, and truffles. Not the kind of things you find in most kitchens, but back in the kitchen of Mr. Rothschild, things were a little different. Being one of the wealthiest men in the world, he kept a full larder with which to feed his array of international friends. Rossini was a global phenomenon by this time. His opera, The Barber of Seville, had redefined what Italian opera was meant to be, and he was travelling the world enjoying his fame and success. The composer loved his food and he gravitated to the house of Rothschild and his world-beating chef on many occasions. Rossini and Carême had become good friends. 
On each visit, Rossini would make a beeline for the kitchen to watch and learn from the master chef, but nothing could beat the wonderful beef and truffle dish Karem would serve him at every dinner. Rossini insisted on being taught the dish so he could enjoy it on other times, but was often frustrated by the lack of skill shown by lesser chefs. The name Tornados has a double meaning, you see. It is firstly a cut of meat from the lower back of the animal, quite tender and perfect for pan frying, but the other derivation of the name comes from the French phrase Tourner la dos, or to turn your back. This was a command the angry composer is said to have made on several occasions to any chef preparing the dish so poorly in front of him that he no longer wished to see them work. It was this, or a command to his erstwhile butler to do the same in order to hide the final touches of a recipe from prying eyes as they prepared it together at the table for any gastronomic visitors. But those aren't the only possible stories, are they, Daniel? No, they're not, uh, actually, because uh, it could be three chefs, actually, uh, who could claim this recipe, not only Karem, but uh, another famous chef who called Adolphe Dulgaré, or even, people say, from the Savoy, Mr. Escoffier himself. But also it could be called Tournado because the composer uh, Rossini, when he does his uh, opera, he turns his back to the customers because he's conducting the opera. So obviously he turned turn the door. So could be then something happened there. There's so many question marks on that. That's why it's interesting. But, but, but the main thing for me is the quality and, the, and the, the, the just everything about the recipe. So, so uh, we could sometimes leave this question mark on side and just enjoy the dish, could we? So Tornados Rossini is built on the principles of truly grand cuisine by two friends who were the very best in their respective worlds, or other people, if, if you believe Daniel's stories. It is not something any chef, though, takes on lightly, but the sheer scale and ambition of the flavours has meant that many chefs still see it as the ultimate kitchen challenge, even yes. now. Yes, you agree. Got, we agree. Yes, I do agree, absolutely, because you need to get the foie gras perfectly cooked. You need to have the, the tornado perfectly cooked. The sauce needs to be the proper Madeira sauce with the right reduction, right amount of alcohol in it, and not too much. So when you put your fresh truffle in it, they can come out and the flavor is so mixed and people say, oh my God, what is in this sauce? And that's very quite a complex. Uh, and uh, if you say you need to build it, make sure that it's fit the top of the of the fillet and everything, you know. So not an easy task. For a chef, it's always daunting when you do your first tornado Rossini. So that's the end of this Food Group podcast and the end of Series 1. Well done if you've listened to all six episodes in this series. If you haven't, you can go back to your app and download the other five or you can get to us via the website, which is www.thefoodgrouppodcast.com or our Facebook page, The Food Group. Do let us know what you think about any of the content. We love hearing from you and thank you so much to those of you that have already dropped us an email or left a comment. We love hearing from you. We're going to take a hiatus. We'll be back very soon with Series 2. And in the meantime, we're going to upload some extra bits, some stuff we couldn't quite squeeze into Series 1 from our recording sessions with Ollie, Daniel and Joe. So make sure you subscribe so you don't miss anything we upload. Thanks for listening. The Food Group is a CM Audio production.